Thanks for joining us for the podcast of the River Anglican Church in Blacksburg, Virginia. Today, we are in week two of the marriage series, The Lord of the Rings. And today, Jonathan talks about the Garden of Eden and also the woman at the well. So here's Jonathan. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you so much for the privilege of being here and worshiping you and the privilege of sitting at your feet under your powerful, effective, loving word. Lord, may we be eager to hear from you most of all this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning. Uh, My name is Jonathan Tagg. For those of you here and online um, who don't know me, it's good to have uh, be together. I want to thank you all just for your support as a congregation, your prayers, your um, cards and meals, and for those of you who were able to make it to the funeral service of Ray Orton, uh, Robin's father, this past um, Friday it was really, really beautiful, just the support from our congregation. We had like 25, sometimes 28 people in our house, you know, so having meals coming through was just amazing, and our refrigerator is still bursting forth with meals, so thank you. Um, So we're in the second week of a three-week marriage series entitled Lord of the Rings. And last week, Mary preached on God's design for marriage. And we learned in that sermon that God's design for marriage is oneness. Uh, First point, her second point was communication. God's design is for intimacy. And then fourthly, God's design for marriage is as ministry. And if you missed that, you can go back online and to listen and listen to all of our sermons. And so this week is the second week that we're going to look at marriage. And we're going to ask the question, like, what happened? What went wrong? If this was God's design, what happened? And we're going to look at two passages of Scripture uh, and basically make some observations about those passages of Scripture. And I'm going to move a little faster in the first part of the sermon because I've 22 observations. Um, no, I don't have 22, but that would be a lot. I, don't have, I do have half that, 11, so I'm going to move <laughs> rather quickly. And then we're going to slow down as we get to application. So if you would turn, uh, if you have a Bible, feel free to turn to Genesis chapter 3, because that's going to be the first passage we're going to look at. And I'm going to just make six observations about this passage, and they all have a direct impact on our marriages and on all relationships. And by the way, if you're not married, this is, you know, not yet married or whatever, don't plan to be married. This is a passage about all relationships, and so it applies to everybody, uh, married or not. So first, in this passage, we see that Eve allowed her understanding of God and her trust in God to be compromised. And when that happened, she began to look for fulfillment in the wrong places. So look with me at Genesis 3, and it says, talks about the serpent being more crafty in verse 1. And he says, did God really say you must not eat from any tree of the garden? The first thing he did was made her question what God said, God's word. And the woman said, uh, we may eat from the tree of the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that's in the middle of the garden. You must not touch it or you will die. And then, of course, he just outrise lies. You will certainly not die, he said, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Again, getting her to question that God really didn't want their best interests. God was 
self-centered and keeping things from the first couple. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for wisdom, she took some and she ate it. So she allowed her understanding and trust in God to be compromised. And then when it was compromised, her belief in God's goodness, then she took and ate. Secondly, Adam's passivity contributed to Eve's seduction and his own openness to temptation. Just think with me for a second. When Eve was seduced by the serpent, it says that Adam was there. And yet his leadership, his voice, his challenge to Eve's thinking and to Eve's decision-making, nowhere to be found. And add to that the fact that without any contest, Adam just simply takes of the fruit and eats it. There's nothing, no questions offered, no contest at all. Verse 6, it says, She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. So thirdly, as a result of their sin, Adam and Eve experienced shame for the first time. Now there's different ways but you can define shame and guilt, but the first time I heard shame defined as uh, embarrassment or humiliation over who we are before God, a light bulb went off in me. I've always thought of like shame as something I've done wrong. I mean, it can be defined different ways. But when I define it, shame is that I'm humiliated before God about who I am. And so, attempting to hide that shame, it says that Adam and Eve made coverings for themselves, but they were insufficient to cover them, not because they didn't cover themselves physically, but we learn later that they were insufficient to cover them spiritually. So the Lord made coverings for them. Look with me in verse 7. Then their eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. And so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. But were they adequate? No. Verse 21. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and Eve, Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. A few more points in this first passage, then I'll summarize. Fourthly, Adam and Eve hid from the Lord in order to conceal who they were, their shame, and what they had done, their guilt. And so what we'll find in the first couple, all throughout the scriptures, as well as in our own lives, is that hiddenness from the Lord is common when we're ashamed of what we've, who we are what we, and, and guilty for what we've done. Verse 8, Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God who was, as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord. They used to talk to the Lord. Now they hide among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, didn't just end there. He pursued them and called to the man, where are you? And he answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid. Fifth, Adam and Eve refused to take responsibility for their actions, but they, and they attempted to acquit themselves by blaming others. Verse 11, and he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree I commanded you not to eat from? And the man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is it that you've done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. So not only did they blame, but they refused to take responsibility for their own actions. Sixth, and finally, as far as observations, Adam, Eve, and the servant were punished by God for their sins. And this was after this complex series 
of attempts to deny. First off, that God would judge them, right? Because the serpent said, oh, you know, you will not die. God's not going to judge you. Secondly, they hid. And thirdly, they blamed. So the first couple began what we see in the Bible is this ongoing cycle of what some call sowing and reaping. When we sow in sin, we reap the consequences. This is a principle that we're going to see again and again in the scriptures and throughout history and in our lives. Sowing and reaping. I won't read the whole passage, but you'll see in verse 14, God cursed the serpent. God talked about putting enmity between her, him and the woman and between your offspring and hers. That he would crush the offspring of Eve, would crush your head and you will strike his heel. To the woman, he said, I will make you, you know, painful in childbirth, of which Robin said that was just, she's still angry with Eve over that one. And your desire, key verse here, verse 16, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. That word desire is the word to covet in Hebrew. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I command you not to eat, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground. Through painful toil, you will eat food from all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles, and you will eat plants of the field. And so they were punished. So let me summarize this first passage. So God made everything, and he said, oh, this is good. And other things, he said, this is very good. Tov me'od. And, but it was us who spoiled it. It was us who destroyed what God had put in place. And mistrusting God, they believed in the lies of a serpent who caused them to question God's goodness for them and God's righteousness and God's trustworthiness. And they believed the lies of the serpent, not only about about God, but about themselves. They disbelieved that they would have any consequences. And they took the one thing that they were told not to take. Isn't this so true of us? Do not touch this one thing and I will give you everything else. But that was the one thing they took. And as a result, their relationships with God and with one another and with themselves, their knowledge of themselves, and their relationship even with creation was broken forever. They attempted to create coverings, uh, hiding themselves, you know, their nakedness, but that was just a metaphor for their, that word naked is, is, is connected to the Hebrew word for terror and fear. So they were attempting to cover their terror because the first time, instead of talking with God in the garden, they were hiding from him. But their coverings did not work. And when pursued and confronted lovingly by God, what did they do? They blamed. They didn't take responsibility. They were bent as a consequence towards one another. As we're bent towards one another, they were bent towards work and towards toil and labor to fulfill a hole in them that never, ever could be filled. It would produce thorns and thistles. And what we see after looking at one more story in the New Testament is that the many, many of the reasons that our relationships, including our marriages, suffer are the same reasons that Adam and Eve suffered. Mistrust, hiddenness, idolatry, enmity with God, disconnection with God and with one another. So let's look at another passage, John 4. And this 
This passage plays out many of these same themes, but with a different situation in a different way at a different time in history. All right, so if you would turn to John 4, I'll make five observations. The first is that the Samaritan woman was isolated. Because we read in John 4, 6 that it was about noon when Jesus encountered the woman. And if you were a a Jew of that time, you would say, why would someone go to a well at noon? (laughs) Like, you know, that's just not the time. And having some of us having been to Israel know that it is hot. It is hot. So this is a clue that she didn't want to see people because she was coming at the heat of the day carrying these water jars and then, you know, or buckets and then leaving with even more weight because she didn't want to be seen. She didn't want to be confronted. This woman was hated by the women in the village more than likely because she had five husbands or men. She was with a different husband now, and she was feared or coveted by the men of the village. Secondly, she did not have a relationship with God. I mean, Jesus says it pretty plainly. In verse 10, Jesus said, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. She just did not know God. Third, once the woman asked for water, water, Jesus went to the central issue in her life that kept her from God. It's like the story of the rich young ruler. And he says, this one thing you lack, go sell everything and give it to the poor. And he went away sad. But here in this passage, he knows that she's bent towards men. She's in multiple illicit and sinful relationships with men. It disables her from being in community with God and with others in her village, probably from her family as well. And so he goes for the jugular saying, He says in verse 13, everyone who drinks from this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give will well up to eternal life. The woman says, sir, give me this water. She thinks he's talking about the physical water. She has no spiritual insight. I don't want to keep getting thirsty and have to come back to this well day after day. And he says, oh, you want this water, meaning himself? You want the water that I will give? Then go call your husband and come back. That is the central issue that's keeping you from living water. Fourthly, to her credit, when he says this, how does she respond? She responds honestly. She could have lied and she could have said, oh, well, no, we're good, thanks, have a great day. But she tells the truth. And that honesty opens the door for Jesus to talk to her about with far more Uh, kind of clarity. She said in verse 17, I have no husband. And Jesus said, you are right when you say you have no husband. Thank you for your honesty. The fact is you've had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband either. And what you've said is quite true. And you can imagine him being proud of her at that moment for her honesty and thanking her by saying, Now we're ready to talk about some very, very important things. Well, what happens after that is fifth and finally that they get into some meaningless dialogue. But after that meaningless dialogue, Jesus again swings it around and talks about, look, this is the type of true worshiper 
that God is looking for, the Father is looking for those who worship according to the Holy Spirit and according to truth. So verse 19, sir, the woman said, I see you are a prophet, you know. Tell me more about, you know, God. No, she says, our ancestors worshiped on this mountain. And you can just imagine him putting his head in his hands. But you Jews claim the place where we must worship, you know, back and forth. And he says, look, woman, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain or not. Don't talk to me about basically religious politics. <laughs> A time is coming, verse 23, when true worshipers will worship in the Spirit and in truth. Those are the ones the Father seeks. God is Spirit, and we must worship in Spirit and in truth. The woman said, you know what? I know that when the Messiah is coming, he's going to make all things right. And he says, I, who, I the one speaking to you, am he. Cannot be said more plainly than that. Well, let me just summarize this, and then we'll apply. So this story obviously pairs extremely well with Genesis 3. It also pairs very well with many of your lives and my life today. And it takes what we saw with Adam and Eve in this first couple, but it puts it in a very relatable situation today. A woman looking for love in all the wrong places, as the song says. She had accepted this subpar definition for herself. Her identity was broken and was bent believing that she was desperate for love to be, you know, to be reached by men. And that was really the curse given to Eve is that her desire would be for her husband, that because of that, she would covet her husband, her husband's attention. And here we see the same thing in this woman's life, that her looking to men for self-fulfillment and self-worth. And as a result of this bentness, her sin isolated her from those in her village and her family, um, from the Lord. So strong was sin's hold upon her and oftentimes upon us that you can say that sin inconveniences us. It causes us to do things and go places that we would not otherwise go if we were not held captive to it. And so she goes to extreme lengths to avoid conflict and confrontation and exposure of who she is and what she's doing. And friends, we learn as we get into application here that I'm not quite there yet, but I just can't resist myself, can't hold myself. Sin creates hiddenness, and hiddenness creates more sin. Think about that. Sin creates hiddenness in your life and mine. And when we're hidden, that creates even more sin because she was deprived. Not only was she deprived of others, but others were deprived of her. And friends, that's what sin does. It deprives Others, us of others, and others of her, of us. When challenged that Jesus was a prophet, she began to deflect the conversation into kind of meaningless religiosity. And here we learn that Jesus says, look, I don't care about your religious stuff. What I care about is a relationship with you. Amen. And that's what she was missing. She was confusing religiousness. Oh, you worship on this mountain. And he could have gotten into this debate. And no, this is what I want. Worshippers, true worshipers. She had initially missed this fact because she wasn't spiritually minded, which we must, friends, we must ask ourselves, okay, here on Sunday morning, I'm spiritually minded, but what am I during the week? Who am I during the week? Am I like the Samaritan woman? who God was in front of her talking about spiritual, talking about thirst and she couldn't relate it 
to God, but only to not coming back and having to inconvenience yourself. Jesus revealed her greatest thirst was not finding the man of her dreams, but finding God. And this was truly her experience, that God had found her, that he knew her better than she even knew herself. Because in verse 29, by the way, which is kind of beginning at the, the, the last part of the end of her story, of this story, verse 29, she says, Come see a man who told me everything I ever did. In other words, he knows me better than I even know myself. Isn't that what it's like to encounter God who still loved her and accepted her and forgave her, even though he knew everything about her? How humbling. So let's dive into application here. Why is this important for making marriages better? What a horrible question, I thought this morning when I was thinking through this. But why is this important for making marriages in God's image? <laughs> is probably a better, a better way of saying it. Why is this important for all of our relationships to be better? Well, first, all of our relationships, including our marriages, are only as strong as our understanding of and intimacy with God. I just want to make that principle. Your relationships with one another, and especially marriages, will only be as strong as your individual understanding of and intimacy with God. And it impacts every area of our, area of our lives. Adam and Eve's downfall began with a mistrust of God and a mistaken identity of who they really were, that if they sinned, that there would be no consequences. So the closer we get to God, the closer we get to one another. Mary mentioned this diagram yes, uh, last week, and I thought I'd just put up this triangle this week. So we have weird, so weird. We'll picture a triangle, friends. And picture God, uh, sorry, picture God here, the husband and the wife. And as we individually get closer to God, what happens? We get closer to one another. As we get closer to God individually, we move up that triangle together, triangle together, and we get closer to one another. Conversely, if you flip the triangle, and if we put God at the bottom of our lives, as we uh, get farther and farther away from God, we get farther and farther away from one another. And that relates to point number two. When we mistrust God as the source of our deepest desires, as the source of our deepest needs, I know I have this one up, there we go. We look to the wrong places for meaning and for beauty and for fulfillment. Friends, we eat forbidden fruits, we drink from the wrong wells. And as I mentioned before, the, the, the term when Eve listened to the serpent and what he was saying and, and the lies that he was making, it said that she did what? She turned and she looked at the fruit. And that word is the word to covet also, that, that, that we desire something that replaces as a substitute for God. And in our lives, many, of, many times this is a relationship. It's work, it's vanity, it's what we drive or where we live or how much we have. It's sometimes security that becomes the substitute for God, financial security. But friends, these looks are never static. So never think that just because you look at something, it's done. Because looks always become actions, and actions always become habits. And habits always become well-worn paths of disobedience. Right? It's never a look. 
A look becomes an action, an action, a habit, a habit, a well-worn path. So we have to stop it at the look. This bentness causes enmity in our relationships. It becomes like a tug and a tug of war. We stop reflecting the image of God to one another, and it becomes workaholism and sexual perversion and addictions and infatuations and so forth. Let me tell you a quick story before we just wrap up with a little more application and close. So, like early on in our marriage, the um, I just, you know, I grew up in a family. Well, so early up in our marriage, I grew up in a family. Let me, let me try that again. I grew up in a family that loved to work. Mother and father that loved to work, especially my dad, wasn't around very much. Oftentimes, you know, accolades from Renaissance and Baroque society and kind of the classical music scene, which is where he hung his hat. And so I grew up really um, in a family that was a workaholic family. And after getting married, you know, um, I was in ministry. And so that's kind of what I did. I just, you know, did ministry during the day and then I had meetings at night. And then sometimes I'd open my laptop um, once laptops were invented, and I opened my you know phone or whatever it was, my Palm Pilot and so forth, and would work a lot at night and would make phone calls. And Robin eventually, you know, after the first year, just began to say like, you know, this is this is getting a little out of hand. And the second year, and then third year, and the fourth year, you know, we're in upstate New York and then Florida. And by the time we moved to um, Colorado, year four, five, six, she'd about had it. And she was, you know, literally like, I'm so unhappy. I'm, and she said she would go to bed crying a lot of times, but I wouldn't know because I was, you know, up working or in meetings or whatever. And eventually it got to the point where she's just like, I've had it. I'm leaving. I don't know what to do. And, um, and I realized like when she started to use language like that, that, that I really needed to, to deal with things. And now here's something about me that's, kind of, you know, sad, is that I don't really listen. Sometimes I don't listen to people. But then when the Lord speaks to me, like in a, in a hard and fast way, I, I listen. Is anybody else like that? Like you just sometimes are stubborn and obstinate, and it's like it takes the Lord to just drop the hammer, and you're like, okay, I get it. So even though I had like listened to her, I hadn't really made many changes to my life. I was just like, and in fact, if anything, I used to be like, oh, nag, nag, nag. You know what I mean? Not good. Never good. But I did one night have a dream, which this isn't very common for me, but I had a dream that was so stark that I've always remembered it. And, and it was so deeply spiritual that the moment I woke up in the morning, I knew that God was speaking to me through this dream. I just needed time to have him apply what it meant. So the dream was is that, you know, here's, a, here's my wife sitting under a tree, you know, and one of our favorite books is um, Ferdinand the Bull. And Ferdinand the Bull is sitting under a tree. You just need to read the book and it's worth it. It's a children's book. But so the image of sitting under a tree was like something I was familiar with. And I thought, oh, there she is. She's sitting under a tree. But the camera zooms into the tree and the tree doesn't have any leaves on it. And it zooms up to the sky, and there's a massively hot sun. Then it zooms down to my wife, and she's got red, uh, scorched, kind of wrinkly skin, and her face is burned. And I was like, that doesn't look good. 
and she's not happy. She's actually in duress, okay? And then I wake up, and I'm, and I'm really bothered by this dream. God, what does this dream mean? And over time, uh, next couple days, and talking with some people and praying about it, I realized the Lord was saying, like, Jonathan, you are the tree for your wife. You're the shade for her, and you care for her, and you love her. And your, your intimacy with her is what protects her and cares for her. Just like God talks about in Ephesians, Paul talks about, God talks about through Paul that, that as Christ loved the church, that the husbands are to love their wives. And he revealed to me that I wasn't loving, for, I wasn't loving her, I wasn't caring for her. And I mean, this just really, really, really hurt me and really broke my heart in a good way. And I told her about the dream. She had been praying for me, you know, and I told her about the dream. And of course, she just broke down because suddenly it made her realize that God was on our side, right? That God was working for us and that prayer made a difference. And um, I began to see a counselor and I began to address why was it that I was such a workaholic. And it's gotten better much better over the years. And it's, of course, taken multiple cycles of me being challenged and confronted with this issue. But it's gotten much better, this bentness and this brokenness that I had. And so, friends, um, it's so important that you and I address that when God isn't the center of our lives, when we go to other sources, other wells, that they'll never satisfy and that he's very, very um, jealous to, to correct those. Let me just make two final points and I'll close. The fruit of disobedience is isolation and loneliness. And we see that again and again. The fruit of disobedience in your life and mine is isolation and loneliness. Adam was ashamed of himself. Eve was ashamed of herself. The Samaritan woman was ashamed. And isolation keeps you and it keeps me from others. It keeps you and me from others speaking truth into our life. Speak being Jesus into our life and saying like, this needs to be made right. And so isolation, friends, is sin because it keeps us from the grace of God in the body of Christ, people loving us and speaking to us. Fourth and finally, when walls of hiddenness and dishonesty and isolation have been built, pride is ultimately both the reason for that and the result of that. See, pride does not accept responsibility. It places blame. Pride says, I'm this way because of you. I'm this way because of what you've done. I'm this way because of my parents. Pride does not accept the choices that I make each and every day to be who I am and to be where I am and to be what I am. Pride says, I'm better than this person. I'm better than my spouse. I'm better than this other person because of what you've done to me or because of um, just who I am. Pride holds grudges in the past instead of looking to the future in hope and saying there's a great hope for our relationship. Pride looks to the past and holds grudges. Pride makes judgments about other people saying things like they will never, ever change. And the reason that's so sad and so offensive to God is because it doesn't just make a statement about the person, it makes a statement about God who says that he can do the impossible. And here we are saying, you will never, ever change. It puts shackles of disbelief on our relationship with God. When Jesus was asked about the primary reason for divorce, do you know what he said? Someone want to say it? 
hardness of heart. He was with the religious leaders there trying to test him. And he said this to the religious leaders, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. So friends, the ultimate reason for divorce is not because we don't get along anymore, you know, and not because I've moved on or I've fallen out of love. The primary reason for divorce is because our hearts become hard to the Lord and to others, and we become isolated and prideful. About pride, a person said this, pride is concerned with who is right. Humility is concerned with what is right. Richard Baxter said, self is the most treacherous enemy and the most insinuating deceiver in the world. Of all other vices, it is both the hardest to find out and the hardest to cure. Andrew Murray said, pride must die in you or nothing of heaven can live in you. And so friends, I'll end with this. I know it's a heavy message. You thought we were done with Lent, right? But no, we have to hear the bad news before we can hear the good news. And the bad news is you cannot change yourself. You cannot try harder, do better. You just can't. Our hearts are too hard. You know, the walls between us and God and others are our well-worn paths are too well-traveled, as we might say. But the amazing part is that God pursues us in the garden. God pursued this Samaritan woman. It said that he had to go through Samaria. He didn't have to go through Samaria. He could have gone around. He went through because he loved her. And friends, he loves you this morning. Our job is simply to cooperate with what the Holy Spirit is doing. So as we go to prayer, I just encourage you, God, show me where I am hard. Show me where I distract. Show me where I'm like the Samaritan woman. Show me where I'm like Adam and Eve, God. Show me because I want to be the best version of you in this world that I can be. Amen. So let's pray. And if you would, kneel and we'll go before our Father and ask for his transformation. Thanks for joining us for this sermon from the River Anglican Church. You can find us on the web at therivernrv.org, also on Facebook, and you can join us in person if you like on Sunday mornings at 9.15 at 110 Roanoke Street East, Blacksburg, Virginia, 24060. We hope to see you again next week.